Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts, Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com slash newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today's guest is very special. Jeffrey Blunt is a multi-talented and award-winning author and TV director who spent over a decade directing Meet the Press and was the first African-American director of The Today Show. Jeffrey is not just a writer. He's a storyteller who's shedding light on issues of race, social justice, and the relevance of these issues to people's health and well-being. I'm thrilled to welcome Jeffrey to the show today. Lucy, thank you for having me. In my world as a doctor, it's clear that health is about people's weight and their cholesterol and their biometric data, but that the social determinants of health matter in unmeasurable ways. What I love about what you're doing with your writing and your speaking is that you are showing audiences how relevant people's stories are to their person and really to their health and sense of well-being and belonging in the world. So I'd love to start by asking you to talk to me about two stories. One, the story of you in the spring of 1978, sitting at the College of William and Mary. And two, the story of Evan Walls, who is the subject of this incredible novel, because both stories to me are about the power of education to bring people out of their circumstances and to improve their overall health, well-being, and opportunities for a better life. Absolutely. So I've sat in a very ornate and beautiful room on the campus of the college in William & Mary with my father, mother, and my older brother beside me. We were the only family of color in this room. And I grew up on a very small farm in a very uh, conservative small town in Virginia. I knew that I should feel uncomfortable in this space. And to make matters worse, there was a woman sitting in front of us who kept turning around and glancing at us. And each time she glanced at us, she got more and more angry. My mother supposed later that she probably thought that we were the children of the help and that my mom was the help coming to celebrate a white child who was graduating. At any rate, they opened the door and these college students started walking through. This was an event to celebrate college students who had joined Phi Beta Kappa, the nation's preeminent scholar group. And because my last name is Blunt, my brother Brian led the group of students who opened the door and walked out. And he was the only African-American 
in that space as well. At that point, the woman stopped turning around to look at us, and I wanted to see her face. I wanted to look at her and let her see her prejudice reflected in my face, and I wanted her to feel my brother's presence. After the ceremony, we were all talking to members of the society. They were congratulating us, but they didn't even know how to refer to us in a way that was in their minds without causing conflict. They looked at my parents and they looked at my brother, Brian, and they said, well, we, we want you to know that Brian is the, uh, um, the first of his kind. The first of his kind. And Interesting. They, they couldn't even say <laughs> they it. They couldn't even black. say it. The first black Phi Beta Kappa inductee. Right. And so what that did for me that day, and when I told my brother Brian this story many years later when we were, were adults, he was surprised. He didn't know what I had taken from that day. And what I took from that day was, if my brother can do this, I can do this. And if my brother can be as smart and as brilliant as all these other top graduates from the College of William & Mary, why can't I do the same? And so I went back to college with a renewed view of what I was capable of from what my brother did. And that kind of confidence creates some positive health. It's what we're talking about, mental health. You know, there's a struggle to believe in yourself as an African-American, particularly, I think, as an African-American male. And my brother boosted that for me. And when I went back to college, I took it with me. It's clear to me that your parents instilled in you from an early age that education was critical. It was such an important facet of your childhood. And then it wasn't just about the reading for the sake of reading. It was the education for the sake of upward mobility. Right. Your dad was one of nine kids, was a farmer. He went to college for a brief time, but then had to be called back to the farm. And your mom didn't have the chance to go to college. But when they had three boys, they were all in they on raising in. you three with education at the core of your childhood. You know, they lived the life. My mom became a kindergarten teacher at the church kindergarten because schools were still segregated. I started out in segregated schools. Black kids couldn't go to any kind of public kindergarten or anything like that. So the church created it, and my mother and Mrs. Ford started doing that. We saw that right from the beginning that she was invested. When my grandfather gave land to build a black elementary school, my father was head of the PTA. If somebody said something needs to be done for the school, they raised their hands first. We saw firsthand what they meant when they said, we want you to have an education. We believe in the power of education. And so how could we not believe in it? We were absorbed by their dreams too. I love to tell the story of my oldest brother when he was a senior in high school. Someone said to him, Richard, are you going to college? And he looked at him and said, you mean I have a choice? <laughs> because not in our household, you were going to go to college, you were going to get an education. That's what we were raised to expect. And that's what we expected of ourselves. I also love the story you tell about your dad, I think, coming in to tell you boys, you know, your mom and I have helped you along the way with reading and writing, and we've kind of maxed out on what we can help you with and the <laughs> physics and the math. Like, you guys got to help each other out at this point. That's you right. Know, you guys got to be there for each other. And you were like, oh, we're already all over it. Already all over it. I was the, mostly the beneficiary because I was the youngest. And I love to tell the story of my older brother. I was taking physics in high school, and my two friends, Sonny and Jim, and I were studying for this physics exam, and we were very nervous about it. And my brother Richard was a physics major at Old Dominion College and uh, University in Virginia. And so he came home from college in the middle of the week to tutor us for our physics tests, which was we were going to have in the next couple of days. That's the kind of legacy my parents left with us. 
What do you think education meant to your parents? What do you think it meant to give those opportunities to their children? I don't think it was just about the material you were reading. I think it was both my parents are children of Jim Crow. I think that in many times in their lives, they often wondered about what if, if I had had the freedom and opportunity to do the things I wanted to do. So I think they wanted, first and foremost, for us to be able to get an education so we could have a good job, so we wouldn't have to struggle to raise our families. Second, and I think as we get older, this probably should have been more important, but they were not doctors, and that's not what came first in their minds, is about our mental health and how education relieved much of the pressure that they lived with because it afforded us the opportunity to have an education. All of us had tremendous careers, and because of that, we had financial capabilities that they never had so we could raise our kids the way they wanted us to raise our kids, but without some of the worries that they had. They provided for us and wanted for us a life of opportunity, but a life of mental well-being, mental health, good mental health, because we didn't have to struggle with some of the inherent struggles that their African-American generation had to deal with. And we know from abundant data that children who experience adverse events, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, are more likely to struggle with anxiety and depression and PTSD, substance use disorder, and develop cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity. It sounds like they were very well aware of the sort of trajectory that you could take if you didn't have an education. They saw it because yeah. we lived in a rural area where there's a lot of rural poverty, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of tragic lives, and they lived inside that community. They didn't want that for their children. When we think about mental health, you know, people talk about nature nurture. Is depression genetic? Is alcohol abuse inherited? Or is it environmental? Is it informed by your circumstances? I take the view that, of course, they're both types of inputs, right? Right. Like nothing is preordained and nothing is all environmental. But I've come to believe that there's so much about our circumstances that inform our everyday thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors. If you grew up in Black America and you are a victim of chronic social injustices and oppression and you do not have opportunities educationally, socially, of course you're going to have distress and maybe an anxiety disorder, depression, PTSD, turn to alcohol or substances to, yeah. to medicate. That's not inevitable, but I'm just saying to me, what you're pointing out in your own story and in your writing is how education is a ticket towards improved mental health and improved opportunity. These things aren't genetic. You know, we saw that as children. We watched adults around us struggle. We watched families struggle. I will say that people have often asked, well, what was the difference with your parents? And I think the difference with my parents was their religious beliefs. They believed that there was somebody there for them who would give them strength, that they could pray to God, and they believed that God would give them strength and help give them direction and help keep them strong. They prayed for strength all the time. In fact, I remember my brother giving a sermon and talking about my parents on their knees praying for strength. That gave them a lot of courage that I think a lot of families didn't have and even struggled with their religion. And I think part of the reason, the luck of the draw for my family was that we were farmers and we could grow our own food. And my father, even though he had all those siblings, he talks about the fact that their real struggle was in clothing, but they could feed themselves. So I grew up watching them 
you know, have people come to the farm to pick vegetables and they delivered meat to the families who couldn't have it and that sort of thing. So there was some pressure alleviated because of the luck of the draw that they were tillers of the land. So all of that was helpful to us. Tell me about that moment that might make me cry if I think about it too much, where you are dropping Julia, your precious daughter, who I know and adore, off at college. So this goes back again to my parents and their drive for education. Their three sons had gotten educated, gotten college degrees, and had done really well. But as a parent, you get that drive. It's kind of hard to turn it off. So they passed it on through us to their grandchildren. Jean and I took Julia to college. We dropped her off in her room, and I left Julia and Jean with Julia's roommate. And I found a quiet space on the campus, and I called home to my home home. And my mother answered the phone. And I said, Mama, do you know where I am right now? And she said, no. And I said, I'm standing on the campus of Princeton University. I said, you and Daddy have made it to the Ivy League. She started crying, and I started crying. And now I'm going to start crying. (laughs) I wanted her to share in the work that she'd done and to recognize that not only did her children believe what she said, but her grandchildren believed what she said. Julia became an educator. Julia is a director of an elementary school in Culver City now. And my nephew, Joshua, is a director at a school in New Orleans. So two of her grandchildren have followed in her path. And both of them believe in the power of education. And they believe it is a mission, particularly to help black and brown children recognize the power of education. Let's talk about Evan Walls. This book is pretty extraordinary. For people who don't know this book... It's about an African-American man named Evan Walls, who is about to have his first child with his wife, Izzy. And he's terrified. And he's terrified because he wants to be the best dad he can. He knows what's at stake. And he's afraid that she's going to suffer the same indignities and struggle that he did as a child growing up through all the time that he spent in his hometown. He has not told his wife everything about his past. He just hasn't been able to touch it himself emotionally. What we're talking about, the struggle of the complications of race creating all these emotional issues for folks. And so she finally says to him, look, you got to tell me, if you want me to help our daughter avoid whatever happened to you, you have to tell me the whole story. He takes her back to 1968. Schools are about to integrate. And he is on the back porch with a group of neighbors who meet on his back porch once a week. And one neighbor is on a tirade about how his parents didn't do enough for him. And he believes that much of the African-American community in the town of Canaan, Virginia, isn't doing enough for their kids. And he believes that education, even if they have to go to school with white kids, is the way out. Evan hears this. As a youngster. As a youngster. As a 10-year-old. 10-year-old. And you find out later he's already a gifted child. He's already reading and thinking and all this stuff. But this preaching, as it were, by the character Bojack really inspires him. And he stands up in front of everybody and says, I want that. I want an education. I want to do what he's saying. And he is shocked by the reaction of the adults on the porch. So what happens is Evan ends up, because of this proclamation, he ends up walking a space between two different cultures. The white culture, who in 1968, he would not have been surprised to have him be called the uppity N-word and why do you think you belong with our smart white kids? It would have hurt, but it wouldn't have been tragic. What was tragic was his own community deciding that what he wanted was color-coded white and that he was turning himself away from his culture and his community. So he would spend the rest of his time in Canaan, Virginia, trying to prove that he was black enough to remain in his community. You bring up such 
interesting and powerful themes in this book. One of them to me is about the difference between inclusion and belonging. In the modern world, we're luckily talking much more about the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And inclusion and belonging are different. Sort of like the difference between social isolation and loneliness. Loneliness is a feeling. Belonging is a feeling. And Evan struggles, as you just said, because he's the victim of overt racism from the white community in a setting where schools are being integrated. And then his own community is ostracizing him, shunning him, bullying him. And so while he is technically a part of the black community because he's black, right. he doesn't feel like he belongs. That's correct. And so, you know, we often think of like being in the middle, the middle ground is where things can flourish and blossom. But being in the middle for him is very isolating. Very isolating, very painful emotionally and physically. It's just scary for a child who is looking for support and love. I used to have a different occupation every other day. You know, I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to be a police chief. I'm going to fly jets. And they would say, okay, you can do that. And that's what Evan was looking for. Because he declared his proclamation in the midst of racial strife, in the midst of the fear of what was going to happen when schools integrated, his community saw him as wanting to be white. If you want to go to school with them, you must want to be them. If you want to think like them and, you know, be taught like them and be brainwashed by them, you must want to be them. That's not at all what Evan was saying. What Evan was saying is, I want an education so that I can have a better life. And that was hard for the black community to hear, too. What do you mean you want to have a better life? What's wrong with our lives? Well, Bojack had just told him. You know, he was honest. He said, we don't, we've missed our chance, and I don't want our kids to miss their chance. That's the problem. The legacy of racism is so complicated mm-hmm. and creates so many different narratives of shame and anger and frustration. And imagine a 10-year-old kid now being forced to navigate that just to find himself. Well, and the sad truth of it is that kids today still are. I mean, we know that children of color in the classroom, even if they show their capabilities in the classroom, are more likely to be treated by teachers as not up to the task. Or not just to be seen. I mean, part of, part of this thing with Evan Walls is that, you know, when I have talked to professional groups, the majority of these groups are white and teachers don't know. They don't see these kids. You know, I had actually um, had an email give and take with one teacher who I am so thankful for her because she didn't know, but she got in the game right away and she wanted to know, how do I tell? You know, what do you see that I need to see? You know, and we talked about, well, what happens when you give them break time? And she says, well, I have an aide, and we're usually setting up for the next thing that they're going to do. We give them 10 minutes or so to have juice or something like that. And I said, well, look for the black kid who's sitting by his or herself. Look for the black kid who's pulled out a book instead of the Play-Doh. Look for the black kid who's trying to do some sort of experiment instead of talking. That's seven walls. And you don't even see them. And so she wrote back and she said, you're absolutely right. But this is Evan's particular thing, but so many black children, or I should say children of color, go into classrooms and teachers automatically expect less of them. And because of that, they give them less time and attention. Kids suffer because of that. And kids feel that. A lot of this is unconscious bias on the part of teachers. I mean, like, just like there's unconscious bias in in all of us. But I think your point is so well taken that there are kids out there who are not being seen, who are not being appreciated for what they bring to the classroom and to the table. And that is so isolating. And that it's it's tragic and affects their health and well-being, their mental health in particular. And you start that from an early age. 
And so you're fighting and you're fighting and you continue to fight. As you get older, you get more and more frustrated. You get more and more angry. It's hard to keep your eye on the prize because there's so much to distract you. There's so much going on inside. So I was talking to my father, who's 96. I'm on the board of a a nonprofit called Reading Partners. And I was talking to him about COVID and how we were in the process of, you know, trying to help schools deal with bringing kids back up to reading level and all that they had lost. And my father just went, hmm. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? He said, think about what it was like for us. Do you think you had two years of problems? Not that he is insensitive to children, but in that moment, he was hurt and thinking, I grew up in Jim Crow. I spent my whole life in the South, not drinking in water fountains, sitting in the back of buses, not going here, not doing that, you know, having to look down at my feet instead of looking people in the eye. Imagine my whole life and what I carry, and nobody was caring about us except our folks at church and our parents. I sat with that and thought about that, and he's right. If you know my father, he loves children. He's not saying he doesn't care about the kids today. Of course. It just made him reflect at 96 years old what it was like for him year after year after year after year after year. That was his entire experience. Entire experience. It wasn't an interruption. It was his life. That's right. That's right. And so he had to walk to school. You know, there were no school buses for the black kids when he was growing up. They had lesser equipment, lesser schools. They did have some really wonderful teachers that he mentions. Life was a consistent struggle for him. Having decent mental health or having the possibility of having good mental health, to me, is predicated on having a sense of agency, a sense of control over your circumstances, over your potential trajectory. And I think what you're saying is that your dad didn't have a sense of agency growing up, and he used that with your mom to then... Created for us. Created for you. Right. What's so challenging for kids of color today, you tell me, is when they don't feel like they have a sense of agency, when they don't feel seen in the classroom, when they don't have role models, right. and they aren't represented in like the media or in books, or we don't celebrate the intellectual achievements of Black Americans who are in abundance. That's like right. Kazmikia Corbett who helped invent the mRNA vaccine for Moderna. I mean, without her, we'd be in a bit of a pickle. We'd be in a bit of a pickle. Having some a sense of agency is not only how you move forward in your life and create opportunities, it's also how you feel in your body and your mind about your own existence. Right, exactly. That's the confidence that you carry when you do reach a point where you do feel confident about yourself, about your ability to go into any room and have a conversation with anybody. It changes your feelings about yourself. I think it it lessens the stresses that you carry. So I know that I'm a black man, and I know that in some places I go, it makes people uncomfortable. So what changed for me is that my education, the things that I have done, created in me a sense of strength of my own that in my own head, I've kind of turned the tables. So when I was little, I would have been the one nervous in that situation and afraid, and now I'm like, that's your problem. I'm okay. That's a gift my parents gave me too through education. And the fact that, you know, I worked at NBC all those years and I was Jeffrey from Smithfield, Virginia, the farm boy. And the next day I'm standing in the Oval Office talking to presidents. That gives you some confidence. And that says you belong in a certain way that I never could have dreamed of. 
And I have to tell you, one of the amazing things for my parents were I was walking down the hallway. I w- they were visiting me at work, and I was walking down the hallway with them. And coming towards me was Andrea Mitchell and Colin Powell, and they were talking. Andrea stopped, and I'd worked with Andrea for years and years and years, and said hello, and I introduced Andrea to my parents. And then Colin Powell called me by name. And the thing that they remembered from that whole trip of going into a control room and watching me direct and do all these kinds of things was that Colin Powell knew their son's name. That changes how you feel about yourself and where you belong. Education, all of the advantages that come with it, the self-respect that comes with it, makes it easier for me than it was for my parents, for sure. How much of Evan's story is your story? How much of the book is memoir? And what examples do you have in your childhood as a really smart, capable Black child in the classroom are in that story? I definitely suffered from Evan's issue of being told that I was acting white or that I thought I was white. You were told that directly? Oh, yeah. Over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because, you know, I was in advanced classes in high school. There were very few of us in those classes, and I made friends. If you are in those classes, that's bad enough. But then if you make white friends, that's twice as bad. And so, yeah, I have my own issues and I carry my own scars of that time trying to prove myself on the one hand as a black person as being capable of being hit in this room with all of the white kids who you think are smarter than I am. At the same time, trying to not antagonize African-American kids who will then bully me or call me names and that sort of thing. What did that feel like when you said you had bruises and scars? I mean, what did that feel like? Well, I was, uh, I carried a lot of tension every day. So when I would go to school, before going into the school building, you know, I could feel myself tense up. Like in your muscles? In my muscles. Yes. That didn't relax. I didn't get rid of that unless I was on the football field where you could just let go of your rage. As Evan says to one of his, um, he meets someone and says, football is a good place to deal with your rage, to let it go. That gets old after a while. You start not being able to sleep well, and you start second-guessing yourself, and you start walking down the hall looking over your shoulder as to who's whispering about you. And they're not whispering about you, but now you think they are. All of this stuff is starting to happen, and I just couldn't wait to graduate and couldn't wait to leave. You know, in the modern world, if you went to a psychologist and gave them those symptoms, having a difficult time sleeping, tense muscles, like a little bit of paranoia, they might say, oh, you have an anxiety disorder. What I would say is... We have a structural racism problem, and you are, as a result, carrying the natural anxiety one has when you're living in a a sea of social injustice. That's not to say you don't have anxiety, but what's the root cause? You know, again, going back to this idea of like mental health being genetic or environmental, I mean, this is an example, your experience, your physical, emotional experience of being a Black intellectually gifted child in newly integrated Southern America. I mean, that's an example of the social determinants of your health. Neither of my brothers had this experience. And it's because when school's integrated, my older brother's four years older than I am, and my middle brother's three years older. They had already gone through much of their school life in segregated schools. So when school's integrated, they were in high school. So they had built friendships from kindergarten all the way through. When schools integrated for me, I was in elementary school and a whole bunch of new black kids were coming that I didn't know and a whole bunch of white kids I didn't know. I was in a new sea and I didn't have a background with them to know me and believe in me as to who I was. And so it changed a lot. 
I have to say, you know, I got out of town <laughs> yeah. and I sort of left it. It wasn't until I started reading the stories of other people, other children, that I thought it was time to write this book. Even today, when I do speak about this issue, I talk about the kids who in, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, who are killing themselves. Black yes. children are taking their lives because of this issue. There are court cases where black kids are, and particularly one young woman who was literally so physically abused that she could no longer compete academically. And it's an incredible tragedy. And so these are the kids that I wrote the book for. These are the children that Evan represents. And when people say, oh, Evan goes through some things in this book, it really isn't much compared to what some of these other children go through. When you think about what we just talked about, the mental health, the weight that they carry, just dealing with it on a daily basis mentally. You add the physical abuse. You add the shunning of your own people. And what's a child to do? And there's no pill for that. There is no pill there for that. There is no pill for it. There is no diagnostic code. There is no medication that can fix those kids' issues. I'm not saying that we don't use medication, you know, right. when needed to address, you know, suicidal ideation or anxiety disorders. It's just you are shining a light in your writing on the stacked traumas that affect people's everyday sense of health and well-being, their sense of opportunity, their sense of agency, and then their medical outcomes. Right. There's something I always like to say because people, you know, many people have said to me, why are you hanging out the dirty laundry, you know, as a black person? Why are you telling the story now? And then I usually tell them about the kids who've taken their lives and, and we have to decide what's more important. Are we worried about what some white people will say or are we worried about saving the lives of our children? And other people ask a legitimate question. White people have asked it in my book talks and black people. How is this happening in the black community? First of all, it's not all black people. I want to say that. But secondly, why does it even happen? How is it that black people are turning on each other in this way? So I've tried to answer that many different ways. And then one day I was rereading Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. I just want to share with you the answer that I now give to those people. She has her character, Guitar Bane, say, Listen, baby, people do funny things, especially us. The cards are stacked against us and just trying to stay in the game, stay alive and in the game makes us do funny things, things we can't help, things that make us hurt one another. What she's saying is that the weight of social injustice, the weight of institutional societal racism, is such a scourge that it not only hurts us when we look at the umbrella of systemic racism that affects jobs and housing and all those kinds of things, we internalize it and we end up turning that on ourselves. We hurt ourselves. We don't even understand it. It's like you had the alcoholic parent who, you know, came home and was destructive and beat his wife and children. And then the next generation, you find yourself becoming your dad. How does that happen? Because it leaves these horrible pieces and broken pieces inside of us, and they continually scar us, and we end up turning on ourselves. And one of the reasons I wanted this book, the book had been written, but it hit me. A friend of mine said, you have to watch this show on Blackish. You have to watch this particular episode. And it was about colorism. And for folks who don't know what that is, in slavery, if you were light-skinned, you're more apt to work in the house. If you were dark-skinned, you're more apt to work in the field. That carried forward into the black community. If you were light-skinned, you were more privileged often. There were actually churches that you couldn't become a member of said church unless you were light enough. 
at the end of this episode, they had a voiceover and they said, we knew this was going to be difficult. We knew this was going to be controversial. But the reason we decided to do this is because nothing gets fixed in the shadows. And that's why I wrote The Emancipation of FM Walls. It's only in shining a light on these sort of invisible, unmeasurable, painful truths that we can work on them right. and that we can help people climb out of the darkness. It's true in health as well. I mean, take, for example, my black patients who are coming in for their checkups in the summer of 2020. Right. Some of them had increases in their blood pressure, increases in their weight. They weren't sleeping as well. It would be very easy for me to say, oh, let's just ratchet up your blood pressure medication. Let's just put you on some Ambien. No, I mean, my job is to assess their blood pressure and manage it, but also to say, what's, what's going it? on? Yeah. How are you feeling? I mean, how, you know, and it's not just my black patients, it's all of my patients. How do you feel in, in, in this moment of political, social, medical unrest, but to not countenance these very real social determinants of our health and our everyday habits and you know the way we relate to our own bodies, the way we relate to stress, the way we process information, it would be weird not to have some kind of physical, emotional reaction to that moment, especially if you're a black person in America. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What I've also heard people ask you about in regards to Evan Walls is, so you were lucky enough to have parents to turn to and to provide solace when you were dealing with these hard, hard times. What about the kids who don't have a trusted mentor at home or, or even a parent at all? How can they even envision being better off, you know, than their parents were? Well, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why I'm speaking to as many people and as many organizations as possible, because I think it's important that teachers and educators recognize these children. That's really where it has to happen, first and foremost. It's a sad reality and truth that many of these kids, like Evan, like some of the kids who've taken their lives, don't have the support at home because the parents are afraid that now that your kids are ostracized, that that's going to roll over to me and now I'm going to be ostracized. And they don't want that. So they put pressure on their children to conform. And when the children don't, then they get angry with them. And so now that the child is struggling at school and now they can't come home either. So I wanted people to recognize that that exists for these children. And that's the hard, hard part. These are the people who are supposed to love you most. And so when you don't have that, when those kids don't have that, they have no way. I look back at, at my life, and I've talked to some other kids. I mentor, actually, children now, or kids who have come to me via the book and, and ask for mentorship. So I can speak to what some kids are going through now. They really have no way of fighting this. There's no information for them. They're just struggling mentally about where to turn to, who to turn to. I'm hopeful that teachers and educators will learn to pick out these kids and will learn to support them. We need that teacher who I told you wrote back and forth to me trying to figure out how she can see those kids. I've spoken to groups like the National Association for Gifted Children, and Evan Walls is now part of a colloquium that they're having with professionals from around the country that they're going to talk about this issue. And before, none of that was being talked about. And I'm happy about that. And I think that this will begin to give kids a way to find help and an organizational structure that they can go to to find help. Tell me about your next book. My next book right now is tentatively called, because I'm sure the title will be changed, <laughs> Mr. Jimmy from Around the Way. It's about an African-American billionaire philanthropist, James Henry Ferguson, who suffers a very public 
severe fall from grace. And in an attempt to escape the social media and the regular media coverage, he buys sight unseen this little house in a very rural place in a made-up town called Ham, Mississippi, to get away from this. And when he finally gets to this house, he finds that he has purchased a home next to the poorest part of this town. So there he is with his billions living right alongside total abject poverty. And he doesn't want to have anything to do with his third world neighbors. He's just trying to deal with his own thing. But an emergency happens in the community, and he finds himself pulled into their lives. And so the book goes along the path of him trying to find redemption for himself and him needing to, because he had this philanthropic background, needing to empower people in this community to take some charge of their own lives and to find something within themselves that they can use to grow rather than just looking for somebody else to give them something. Because one of the things, again, that my parents used to say is, you know, you can knock on somebody's door many times and they just keep telling you, no, when will you get the message? It's time for you to go get it yourself. Again, it's about agency. It's about agency. I love it. It's so clear that reading is your passion, that you believe strongly that education is a gift and a ticket to opportunity to improved health and well-being. You're not only a product of that, you are teaching it and you're writing it and you're speaking it and you're handing it down to kids who even have it harder than you did. Absolutely. I want those children to know that they can be Kazmikia Corbett. I want those kids to understand they can be Thurgood Marshall. And I think that part of what we need to do also, going back to what do you do for these kids, is to show them these role models. When people say representation matters, but when you think about it, when we look at television and we see who the black folks are that we are responding to, it's LeBron and it's Stephen Curry, it's athletes, and you have entertainers and not a whole lot of black intellectuals. We don't know about Gladys West, who is the reason we have GPS. GPS. Yeah. And the reason I even showed up today is because of <laughs> Gladys West yeah. and her GPS invention. And it's a very easy thing. And I've talked to, when I talked to some of the teachers, I said, what is so hard about putting these people in front of the children? What is there in a curriculum that says you can't tell people who Dr. Drew, Charles R. Drew is, who created the blood bank, who's the reason why we were able to deliver plasma in World War II on the battlefield? You think about that gentleman and what he did. He revolutionized medicine. Our kids need to know that. They need to know. They, they need, to, need, need to, to bring these people out into the popular lexicon of and, who we discussed. One of the reasons is they are, well, Charles R. Drew is, is in the past, but Kasmika Corbett is today. So in Black History Month, I want to know about Harriet Tubman, but I want to know about people today who are the Harriet Tubmans of today, like Kasmika Corbett. So those are the ones our kids can relate to. History is history. That's nice. But the people who are changing the world today who are Black and who are Latino, those are the folks we need to see and our kids need to see because the kids who are like I was, who are struggling and looking for the right inspiration, they will grasp those people. And one of those people is you, Jeffrey. You are living and telling the stories of characters who people can identify with. And you're making a difference. So I can't thank you enough for joining me. And I'm just delighted to know you and to know your family. And so I'm just very grateful you were able to join me today. And I can't wait to read your next book. 
Lucy, thank you for the opportunity for this conversation. Every conversation gets me closer to uh, helping the children. So thank you very much. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.